This podcast comes to you from the Plant Biosecurity Research Initiative. For more information on PBRI, visit www.pbri.com.au. G'day, this is Chris Brown. Fall armyworm was first found in Australia in early 2020. Originating in the more tropical and subtropical parts of the Americas, Fall armyworm has been making its way around the world and in recent years at an alarming rate. From Africa just a few years ago to India and then Asia and now Australia, this pest is on a culinary voyage to see the world. Over coming weeks, your industry will be presenting a number of podcasts, both with international experts as well as local scientists, growers and advisors to try to come to grips with what to expect from fall armyworm as it continues its spread in Australia. Today I'm speaking to Jan Hendrik Venter from the Department of Agriculture in South Africa about how South Africa managed the incursion, which really got underway there in 2017. Yes, thanks, Chris. My, my name is Jan Hendrik Venter. I'm a plant health early warning systems manager for the director of plant health in the Department of Agriculture of South Africa. So, yes, my, my job is basically to find the most ugly and worst pests that make enter South Africa and try to, to do something about it before it becomes too much of a crisis or too much of a damage that is caused, etc. It's not always that easy. We work with fairly limited resources. I've got a small division, about uh, six people, but we do make use of our inspection services as well which is our marching guys on the fi- in the field, and those are the guys who would just place traps and go and take samples and send them off to the lab for identification, etc. I'm not as much a full armyworm expert, but I'm more a fruit fly expert, and I'm also part of, of a technical panel for fruit flies of International Plant Protection Convention. Most of my experience is around fruit fly surveillance and management systems. Because of that, and because I run a a nationwide fruit fly survey program, they thought it's a good idea that I also take the lead on the full army invasion. Mm. Yes, well, that invasion only happened back in 2017. Tell me about how that happened, where it came from, and just what happened when you realised it was there. Yeah, maybe we must take it a little bit back. 2016, around about January to April, there were some some reports of new species detected in the west coast, Nigeria, and offland um, islands from Congo. And it sort of stopped their reports and nothing happened. And then uh, through December, there were a couple of media reports of four armyworm in Zambia, Malawi, and then beginning of January, we saw some reports in, in Zimbabwe. And that is when we started an action group for, for armyworm and started to do some surveillance within South Africa. And very soon we started to find the first caterpillars uh, or larvae, which then we started to, to do identification on. So by 17th January to 17th, the, the action group started and in February, we had the first positive identifications, which led then to response actions in South Africa. So that would have been coming towards your autumn. Were they causing damage at that time? Yes, sure. There were reports of damage in the north. Now, just a little bit of our climate more is that in the northern parts of the country where we first had heat, is a warmer period. 
there are more small-scale production of maize or corn, and they produce it for a longer period of time. So there were younger maize in the field by the time that we found it, so they caused some physical damage to the, to the plants. At that time, we could not really determine any production loss or anything like that. It's mainly physical plant damage. Subsequent to that, uh, had they spread more widely through the country? Yeah. This is a migratory pest. They, they can fly great distances. And most of the spread is probably from just flying. Um, they can spread in a, in a season up to 2,000 kilometers, if we compare it with what happens in Northern Americas. So within a season, it spread to the, to the southern parts of a country. Now, three years later, you can find it in pheromone traps almost throughout the year in the more temperate areas. The colder areas where you have frost at night, you won't find any of it. They're really not frost tolerant. Have you been able to identify which of the fall armyworms you have? You, you mentioned damage to corn. So is it a corn fall armyworm or a rice fall armyworm or both? Definitely more corn, although they have identified both haplotypes in Africa, the rice and the corn. In South Africa, we don't plant rice, so we really don't have any, any rice crops that can be damaged. So based on that, we haven't done any identification. We do have two main primary hosts, which for Omnium prefers in South Africa, and that is maize and, and sweet corn. And maize, sweet corn plus sorghum. Now, the... The thing about fall armyworm is it's recorded at more than 80 hosts, and there's a big debate about that because we really don't find it on anything else but maize type of varieties, as including sweet corn plus sorghum. So it's, it's fairly limited to those type of crops in South Africa, and a little bit of millet maybe. I think in, in many countries where you have an intercropping system where you've got a maize patch, a small, like a hectare, big maize patch together with some veggies, etc., you have accidental overflow of larvae. So the very first install larvae can blow around in the wind by, I call it uh, ballooning. Um, so they, they hang on a little silk thread and the wind simply blows them to whatever the wind direction is. And if it lands on a potato or on a bell pepper or on, on anything else, it will have to survive and it will simply eat on it. But they don't oviposit on veggies as far as we could determine. Do you think that might be a reflection of the amount of maize that's grown in Africa? Well, it could be, but I think if you compare it with a host or main host right through the world, they prefer gramini. They prefer the grasses, either pasture or silage or just feedlots or maize or rice. So it seems that this pest is predominantly a gramonite pest and all the others could be accidental. There's one other possible explanation. It's not proven yet. If you look at interception records, there's a lot of egg fruit from Suriname and also a lot of interceptions of egg fruit from West Africa and a few, of, a few capsicum interceptions on East Africa. So that, that's maybe a clue that there might be another haplotype of some of those that prefers more veggie crops. But we tried it even in the labs. We tried to get full armyworm to put the first and second install larvae on, on capsicum plants. They really don't survive on it. They don't complete the life cycle on it. 
Okay. I'm really interested to talk to you about how you managed it right from the from the get-go. It's, it's all very recent memories for you, as you say, from very early 2017. Now, I understand, as you said, a committee, a steering committee was formed. I imagine that would have been at a fairly high level, was it, at a policy level? Well, both. We have two committees, actually. We have a joint operations committee, which is an internal governmental structure, with very high seniority involved. And then we have a steering committee, which I chaired with our industry role players and research role players, together with our national government level, as well as provincial government. What are the different roles of those two committees? The government level uh, committee was basically just to get uh, one voice from, from government opinion so that we first give direction so that internally we don't split ourselves apart because we, we've got scientists and then you've got policymakers and, and regulators. So, so we, we concurred on that before we took it further with our role players and other stakeholders. Okay, so the second committee was a role player, so that's wider, that includes industry. Yes, yes, of course, that, that includes industry and research. And, and then some of the industry would be then your, our grain industry as well as our seed industries. So is it that committee that, I suppose, gets its hands dirty in terms of managing the actual pest incursion? That's right. So from a steering committee, we need to get out in the field. So there's different role players that will do that. I've mentioned before our inspection services would be the guys who do that. We've Grain SA also appointed the service provider who did most of the pheromone surveillance. We also included in our Steerco the, the FAO, Southern African FAO representatives, for instance. They helped us with more international uh, views or an inter-Africa view of how to handle the pest. Tell me about some of the important decisions that you took early on in the piece. <laughs> okay, right. So there were uh, three things that we immediately had to look at because maize is such a large role player for food security in South Africa as well as Africa. South Africa is an exporter of maize to Southern Africa mainly. So that, uh, that had a huge impact if our crops would go down. So because of that, the immediate response of anyone is, how do you whack this pest? What, what can you use to kill it? Uh, so that was a major role. And because we've got a, a very high diversity in South Africa as well, we've got a 90% of our maize is produced from commercial farming, but then there's also a large informal sector. So we had to get to try and register agricultural chemicals for a wide range of people which would be efficient against the pest. So we started an emergency registration process to get that off the ground. So that included some of the biochemicals as well, like your BT, Salicylic chemicals, as well as some of your spinosad type of chemicals including um, some fungicidal chemicals, plus then your hard agricultural chemicals as well. And that was done by June in 2017. We had a list of uh, more than 40 different types of brand names registered with a large number of active ingredients. As you say, there's a diverse range of farmers in, in South Africa, I can imagine, from Broadacre down to the small family plot. How did you get the message out? Yeah, our role players, our Agricultural Research Council played a major role together with our internal promotional and awareness teams. 
We had several promotional materials obviously made in different languages. South Africa's got 11 official languages. So that took a while. The first ones came out quite soon in English, just after the outbreak, because most people are English speaking as a second language, at least. So we, we did that. And then there were a lot of farm school meetings or, or smaller group meetings on a community level, which the guys went out on, as then a lot of media broadcasts, radio, television, etc., which was done. And that was done frequently, I think, for, for almost three to four months just after the outbreak. But what played the major role is that we... I've mentioned before, that by 3 February, we had the first positive identifications. And within a week, we had a, a media release from our minister, which gave the, the information through. We had former visits by the minister by 13 February in the north, mainly because back then it was still there. And that made a lot of awareness and it caused a lot of awareness and media attention. And then the next day, we followed up with a parliamentary committee meetings to get it through a much higher level as well. So we had political will behind us, which helped a lot. Was there a bit of a panic or did, did people mostly think, oh, it's just another pest? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think most people panicked a little bit, mainly because of what's happened in Africa. By then, it was all over the news in Africa as well and a lot of damage is, is reported so one of the things that we did again with our agricultural research council is to look at this space a little bit i, I must almost say back um, sit back and drink a glass of red wine type of scenario and say but hang on is it really that bad what is the real damage it's causing and we've realized that it's not so easy to determine that for various reasons because this pest is competing with seven other pests eating it. And most farmers don't know the difference from one caterpillar to another. So our, a lot mm. of our training to our extension support personnel went to distinguish between different caterpillar pests and show that to the farmers. So they know what we actually have is for armyworm. Because you could imagine, we, we had a, I, I forgot to mention, we had a hotline. I was personally also manning the, the, the hotline, which actually meant that people started reporting caterpillar sightings on any possible crop or flower or ornamental imaginable. So we realized very soon that <laughs> everything was full armyworm back then. It helped us very quickly to see what people now actually paying attention. As you say, there were other pests that were eating the crop at the same time. Have you been able to gauge over the past couple of years fall armyworms place in the whole scheme of things when it comes to this sort of damage? It's almost impossible to determine that because we've got an indigenous organism. It's called Busiola fusca. It's a, it's a stem borer. Now, stem borers really like to occur more or less at the same time than fall armyworm. As I mentioned before, it's mainly leaf damage or growing damage. Now, sometimes fall armyworm will kill the, the growth point of a maize plant. And then it's done. That plant is killed. And that normally happens when the maize crop is quite young and there's quite a large number of caterpillars around. And what happens is that full armyworm will, um, after they've oviposited, two or three days they start feeding. Now, the, the first install larvae are only making leaf damage. And then they start to hide. From second, third install, they will start to hide in the leaf wool. You don't really see them unless you pull it back or you see the, the fresh they excrete from 
from the leaf wheel uh, exiting. So they're quite clever. And that is a time when control is also very difficult. So they may f- completely mm. go f- feed through the stem at that point. And then later on, if there's late infestation, after maize cops are starting to form, then you get damage on the cop as well. But that's actually rare. Um, so the actual production damage is not that much. And small-scale farmers, it can be uh, 60 to, to 80%. If they don't control or do anything about it, in commercial farming, it's it, there's almost no damage, simply because we've got spray programs, etc. You mentioned that it's difficult to control them because they basically disappear into the plant after about the third instar. What about the later fully mature caterpillars? So are, are they able to be controlled? Fully mature caterpillars. Now, we've worked it out more or less at one centimeter and bigger. Now, that's not a very big caterpillar. They can get up to four centimeters. So after one centimeter, they are getting into the leaf walls. So that causes them to be out of reach from pesticides, if you want to control them chemically. But they're also really tough. They don't really die that easily from pesticides, and there's a lot of pesticides they're resistant to. That is one a range of problems in controlling this pest. So you really need to scout very early, scout for egg packs and scout for smaller caterpillar damage. Then you know if they are there, that, that is when they are susceptible to good chemical control and you don't need to use a lot of harsh chemicals or environmentally unfriendly chemicals to get control of them. The problem is when they are one centimeter and bigger, then that is when they feed the most. Then they can eat more than double their body weight per day, which causes them to give a lot of damage to the plant. So you really don't want them to get to that size. Let's get back to the sort of things that you guys did in South Africa. From my reading, you introduced diagnostic services, train the trainer programs. I think there was a, a protein test kit maybe, and you did a lot of data collection as well. Tell me a little bit about those activities. Right at the beginning, to get back to the morphology of a plant, is any Lepidoptera taxonomist would tell you that to be sure of what the pest is, they have to dissect the male moth and look at its genitalia to see, right, okay, this is for armyworm. Now, that is a lengthy process and difficult to do. So we started training the labs not to go all the way into that process. We need to, to find a quicker response. They still do that, though. So we also included molecular techniques as well as then to make sure that up to farmer level, everyone is trained to identify larvae. Now, the drawback is that the smaller larvae cannot be identified very, very easily. Larger larvae has got very nice distinguished marks on them, so they, they can be identified. So that we base a lot of our awareness tools on that. Then the train-the-trainer program was basically all about that. We developed training material, such as our identification guide, to train then our provincial extension support staff. So we first trained their managers, who then trained their staff, who then trained the farmers. What are some of the important lessons uh, that you've learned along the way when it comes to fall armyworm in South Africa? Well, I think the first thing is that you need to focus on where the problem really is. At first, because of a wide host range, one tends to try to focus everywhere. In this case, you need to be very sure what is the actual host it prefers, and that helped us a lot. 
The other thing is early detection is crucial for this pest. A lot of pests you can get away even at late detections, but this one not. If you don't detect it early, you will probably have great problems later on trying to control it. So each farmer has to do scouting very regular during the production season and then later on again to make sure that it's and there's two ways scouting physically scouting looking at leaves then also making sure that he's got pheromone traps up to know when the moths are i think i i saw some caution surrounding pheromone traps was i right there yeah the pheromone traps of original bunch that we got captured a lot of moths of different species, all the type of moths you can capture in it. It will mainly capture uh, full armyworm, but in the beginning, there's also another species called false armyworm, which we had an 80 to 20% ratio false armyworm to full armyworm in the pheromone traps, which is unacceptable. They've worked on the pheromone formulations, and it's now reversed. For last year, we've got new pheromones, and they are like, much more successful. The thing about that is why it's difficult is you, you can presumably also identify the male moths on their wing patterns, but often they flutter around in the trap until they die, and then um, a lot of the scales are rubbed off, and it's not so easy to see the wing patterns any longer. So what about the future? I mean, do you consider that South Africa has this thing under control? Let's get back to the production systems in South Africa. I mentioned before that our commercial sector doesn't really have a problem. There's two reasons for that. Most of our maize is produced on higher altitude areas and it's dry land. So it's cold then. They get frost in winter. There's no maize growing in winter. Because full armyworm is a subtropical pest, they don't hibernate. So they disappear in the most of our dry land commercial production areas, which is for 90% of our production. Also on our commercial sector, they make use of GMO maize, which has got a BT gene inside for our local stem borers. And it seems that they are more protected than the other open pollinated varieties of maize, which is mainly used by small-scale farmers. Just to finish off then, Jan, with your experience uh, since early 2017, what sort of advice would you give to Australian farmers and Australian scientists in, in managing this pest, particularly in the, in the early couple of years? Well I, well, I think early detection remains crucial. There's, there's no way you can, for this pest, you, you have to do that. Each farmer will have to get their scouting systems in place, make sure they detect it early, make sure you've got traps out, and get the best pheromone you can get. Do the research on that, see what what is working the best in your trapping system, but focus on the main host crops. That's where you'll get the most damage. So, so that's one thing. Then the second thing is if you can develop a biocontrol systems which works easier to get an agent in, that's an alternative. You want to move away from pesticide as far as possible, but for this pest, you cannot use really pesticides after the second or third install. So rather try to do early detection and whack it when you can. Jan Hendrik Venter from the Department of Agriculture in South Africa. Of course, every country is different and what works somewhere may not work everywhere. But what I found interesting about talking to Jan was the double barrel job they had to do, protecting broadacre farmers and also small plot family farmers. 
This podcast was brought to you by the Plant Biosecurity Research Initiative, an initiative of the following R&D organisations. Cotton Research and Development Corporation, Forest and Wood Products Australia, Grains Research and Development Corporation, Horticulture Innovation Australia, AgriFutures Australia, Sugar Research Australia, Wine Australia and Plant Health Australia.